We're going to be reading from the book of Colossians this morning, and I'm in the uh, third chapter, and I'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Signs, signs, everywhere are signs. Blocking up the scenery, breaking my mind. You know the song, right? Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? So you thought that was Tesla, but that's not Tesla. Because the words I sang, if I sang Tesla's words, I couldn't do that at church. That was five-man electrical band, and that was their one-hit wonder. That song is 52 years old, folks. Can you believe it? Ah, you just aged. For those of you that went, oh, yeah, you've aged yourself. The, the song is about the, the signs, do this, don't do that. It's about, about rules and regulations. And we don't always like rules and regulations. We don't always like to be followers. We don't like to be constricted or constrained on what we are allowed to do, what we can get away with. And, and sometimes we just try to get away with something. It's, it's, we just don't know if we like rules or being held accountable for them anyway. You know, I like to watch once in a while those shows like Cops or there's, a, there's another one on right now that, that where they follow around police officers and watch them arrest people. And I don't know, it's a guilty pleasure of mine. But, uh, but often, more often than not, you always hear somebody say, I didn't do anything wrong because we don't want to take responsibility for our actions. And we sure don't want somebody to hold us to it. And, and, and those rules and, and regulations, they, they've been around for thousands of years, and, and some of them are as old as the Old Testament, and, and, and some of those we just question, especially in the Old Testament, are we, are we accountable to those today? Are those rules that we have to follow today? <clears throat> and the question was asked as early as the first church, as, as it began to grow, and, and Peter and James are leading the church in Jerusalem, and they had one idea of how Christians were supposed to live their life. They were Jewish converts to Christianity, and so they, they had this understanding that Jewish first, Christian second. And so when Paul goes and, and begins to convert people who are Gentiles, not Jews, and Gentile was just a big word for everybody that's not Jewish, they weren't a monolithic culture, but they were Gentile. They weren't followers of the God of, of Judaism. And so they, 
they didn't have all those rules and regulations, not the same ones anyway. They may have been practicing something else. But Paul then goes to Jerusalem because he, he feels accountable to the people in Jerusalem, Peter and James. Peter, the one who was side by side with Jesus throughout his ministry. James, the brother of Jesus, he feels accountable to them. And he goes to them and he says, you know, here's what I've been doing. And um, I don't think that these, these new Christians have to be Jewish first. And there was some argument about that. There was some discussion about that, quite a bit of discussion about that. No, they've got to be Jewish first. They've got to follow all the Jewish laws and all of that. And, and finally, in the end, the decision was that no, Gentiles did not have to become Jewish before they became Christian. We're not going to make you follow all of those laws. But <clears throat> maybe there's a few we ought to throw in there and say, these are the ones that you have to follow. And the list is kind of odd. Quite honestly, it's, it's from the book of Acts chapter 15. Here, here are the things that we want you to tell those Christian followers, those Gentile Christians. Here are the things you have to do. First of all, don't eat food that's been devoted to idols. Now, that, that was the rule. I, I, you know, what it means is if you sacrifice a, a cow to, to Zeus, don't eat it. Actually, there's an argument in that later, and Paul gives reason and, and account for when it's okay to do. So maybe that's not quite a hard and fast rule in Paul's mind, but, but then also stay away from sexual immorality. Okay, I get that. And then, and then stay away from meat from animals that have been strangled. Huh? I'm not sure what that means, but all right. And then finally, stay away from blood. Okay, I'm fine with that. I, 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 I can go along with that. So those were the rules that, that, that were stated, but, but still, as time went on, you know, the, the, the good Jewish Christians were ones who were trying to have a foot in the Jewish law, but also in the grace that, that came to us through Jesus Christ. And, and you know, back in Jesus' day, those Pharisees were the ones that were trying to follow the letter of the law, and there were hundreds over 500 rules that they had to follow. And, and, and they made life difficult on people who didn't follow. And so, even as time went on, 1,200 years later, there's still an argument about which laws we have to follow in that Old Testament and which ones, eh, we can, we can bypass. And it doesn't seem right to just make it selective to each individual. And so a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas, maybe you've heard of him, a guy by the name of Thomas Aquinas tried to figure out which laws were which. And he, and he gave us, he broke it down into three parts. Three types of Old Testament laws. Ceremonial, judicial, and moral Ceremonial, judicial, and moral laws. Now, ceremonial laws are the laws that related to the sacrificial system. You know, you got to bring a bull for this and a, and a calf for that and a, and a dove for this and, and, a, and a quart of oil, olive oil, or, or some wheat or something. There were laws on what you had to bring for what particular offering you were supposed to be making, what sacrifice you were making. But we understand that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the final sacrifice. No longer is there a sacrifice necessary because God has made a sacrifice for our sin in Jesus Christ. And so that deletes all of the ceremonial laws. 
including all of those laws that have to do with, well, um, what do you have to do to be right enough to make a sacrifice? You see, you don't have to be right enough to accept Christ. God assumes you're not right when you accept Christ. And righteousness is what comes as you work on that in your life. God assumes you're not in the right place at that time. God loves you just where you are and loves you too much to let you stay like that. And so God's going to help you move, but, but there's these, these rules about how do we be right enough to make the offering. And those purity laws, the way that you cleanse yourself, make yourself right enough, there's, those purity laws are part of the ceremonial law, so they're all out too. There's not a particular way to dress at church. Not a particular way you had to wash your hands before you took communion. See, hand washing even had a rule on how you did it. It's nice if I wash my hands before you receive communion. Anyway, so th th those, were the, those were the ceremonial laws. Included, though, also in that were, among those laws were um, don't eat certain foods because they're impure. So like, um, you know, bacon, lobster, that's out. Can't do that. Oh, man. Glad we figured this one out. In, in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, we hear uh, uh, how that was changed. See, see, there was a story that, that Peter is, is taking a nap, and in his nap he has a vision of God lowering a sheet, and on that sheet are all the animals that are impure and that they weren't supposed to eat. And God says, take and kill and eat. And Peter says, oh, no, not me. I'm a good Jew. I don't do that. And God says, the it says this in Acts 10, 15, the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So all those food laws, the purity laws, the ceremonial laws are all set aside. We don't follow those. Okay? The next set of laws were called the judicial laws. The judicial laws um, were, as, as Thomas Aquinas decides, they were um, temporary, meant for a time. Judicial laws are things like, if your ox gores my ox, here's what the rules are. If your ox gores me, here's what the rules are. If I'm, if I'm swinging an axe and the axe head flies off the handle and hits you in the head, here's what the rules are. And what, what Aquinas said was those judicial laws were temporary. They don't count for today. He didn't say there are, should be no judicial laws. Instead, the judicial laws of today are the ones we're supposed to follow. After all, where in the Bible does it say I have to do the speed limit? Well, it doesn't, so therefore there's no rule. No, that's not the case. There is a rule. There's a judicial law for today that I'm supposed to follow. And so we are, as Christians, we are told more than once that we should follow the leadership of those who are elected or those who are, uh, well, you know, in the king situation, um, those who are over us, we should follow their laws. We should live according to the laws of the land, not the judicial laws from the Old Testament, but the laws that are established in that day, in that time, in our day, in our time. So those are the judicial laws. Finally, there's the moral laws. 
And moral laws are the ones that are forever and eternal. Now, Aquinas would include in there, for instance, the, the Ten Commandments. And he would say that these laws are like natural laws. You just should understand this. Thou shalt not kill. Duh. Live that. That's who you should be. That's how you should live. Thou shalt not steal. Yeah, I can get with that. Um, but he also included those, those first four commandments, the ones about how we relate to God. And he would say that that is part of a natural understanding, that, that as we are created by God, the creature reacts to God in a certain way. And, and so it's, we shouldn't have any other gods. There's only one. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't bow down to idols or, or sacrifice to idols. We don't have any idols. And, and we, we should not use God's name in vain. That was actually a, a judicial thing also. Do you know that? It was, it's when you say, so help me God, and you lie, that's when you're breaking that one. That's what that meant. It didn't mean swearing, but I think it's okay to include swearing is maybe don't use God's name that way. And then, and then the fourth, and congratulations, you're living at this moment, is remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But, but by the way, there's a judicial component to that, right? The Sabbath day is Saturday for the Jews, but it's Sunday for the Christians. Why? Because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday, and therefore we commemorate Easter every single Sunday. So there's a judicial part to that moral law. But it was the moral laws that, that, um, that Aquinas uh, says are eternal. They're the ones that, that carry on to today. And, of course, then the long-running argument is going to be, okay, which laws are ceremonial that we're throwing out, and which laws are judicial and meant to be updated for the modern era, and which laws are moral and have eternal significance. And uh, I'm sad to say, I can't tell you exactly where that dividing line is. And I can tell you that we could probably have a long argument at another time. Because those are difficult things to discern. Which is the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the judicial law? And that's some of the argument we have in our culture today. But then the question does come in to, to whose job is it to enforce such rules, such laws? And clearly for the judicial laws, we rely on the judicial system. They are civil laws that are meant for a civil system to care for. But what about moral laws? And I want to say that, uh, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, every time we try to enforce moral laws with judicial code, it just goes wrong. Because it's not the civil society's job to morally legislate the way we should live. It is the moral authorities, the church. It's the church's job to discern that. So it's the task of the church, our membership, each other, to hold fast to those moral laws. And how do we do that? Well, from that passage I read in Colossians, but also in Romans 15, 14, it says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct, but it could also say admonish, same Greek word, one another. Admonish, instruct, 
It can also mean warn. And not warn like, watch it, buddy. But warn like, there's a train coming, get off the tracks. Warnings that help, not that require judgment. And as you probably know from experience, when we decide that it is our job as the moral authority to confront somebody on this, it's a risky business. Most of us don't like to do it, and we try to avoid it at all costs. We don't want to be the bad guy. When we confront somebody, we run the risk of damaging a relationship, which is funny because probably if they're living outside of a moral code, they're already damaging the relationship, yes? We worry that the person we're confronting may get hurt or angry. And then what, right? Why is it that admonition is so unpopular in our culture? Probably because our culture is radically individualistic and morally relativistic. Since our culture prizes individual rights over responsibilities... And since our culture rejects any sense of universal, absolute moral standards, there's simply no basis for moral correction in some people's minds. Add to that fact that pride gets in the way, in the way that many dysfunctional people have abused confrontation, in the way manipulative religious groups have abused admonition, and then it's not surprising that it's hard for some people to face admonition from another. But nevertheless, in the face of our, our dislike of confrontation and its abuse by some, God says it's necessary for us to admonish one another. Last week, we emphasized the truth that we must learn to accept one another as Christ accepted us. Accept one another as Christ accepted us. Thank God Christ accepted us the way we were when Christ found us. Right? God loves you just the way you are and loves you too much to let you stay like that. Thank God Christ accepted us. But like so many issues that we see in Scripture, there's another truth that brings it into balance. The contrasting, balancing truth to accept one another is admonish one another. So again, what does it mean to admonish one another? Admonition seeks to correct those who are damaging themselves and others by their wrong choices and behaviors. Let me give you a quote to consider. Biblical admonition involves moral correction through verbal confrontation. Now, confrontation doesn't have to mean aggressive. It just means... I'm, I'm on the other side of this from you. Moral correction through verbal confrontation that is motivated by genuine love. In reality, there are few signs of our love for one another than our willingness to risk rejection. Because we lovingly confront people for their own good. Isn't that what we do with our children? We confront them for their own good. Love demands that we not let anyone get away with wandering away from God and possibly losing their salvation. The way I like to put it is, is it is the business of the church to get in your business. 
mutual point. Love demands that we hold each other accountable. Accountable to God's truths, to the moral law that God has assembled. If admonition is done in the right spirit, with the right motive, using a right approach, hopefully then the person receiving the admonition will be better for it. And maybe even thank you for it. A stronger and closer relationship can be the outcome of proper admonition of each other. Real Christian community cannot be experienced if there's only acceptance, only encouragement, only affirmation. There must also be a place for admonition. And that's precisely what Paul was saying in this letter to Colossians, but also in what he wrote to the Romans. So how do we offer admonition? There's no perfect formula for effective admonition because there's so many variables. Each person, each situation, each person receiving the admonition, but also each person offering it is different. And other things that might be under consideration are the, the seriousness of what you're talking about, the history of your relationship with the person, their level of spiritual maturity, and yours as well. So let's consider, here's some ideas on how we might do this. And as I share these, think of it as in this way, both sides of it. Think of it as, as, as I am the one admonishing and I am the one receiving the admonishment. Because the way I am willing to receive it says a lot about the way I'm willing to offer it. Okay? There's a mutuality to admonition. My willingness to receive it and my willingness to offer it need to be the same. So first, prayerfully prepare beforehand instead of reacting impulsively. We need God's wisdom and strength and should never engage in spiritual activity without prayer. Also, spontaneous admonition is rarely effective because we're shooting from the hip or acting on emotion. We should take the time to pray for the right attitude, the right wisdom, the right timing, and for God's preparation of the person who will be hearing what we're sharing. Second, admonition should be done with pure motives and the proper goal. When Paul admonished the Christians in the church in Corinth, he says this, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Warn, it's the same word that in Greek means admonish. I, I'm writing this to, not to shame you, but to, to warn you that you're on the wrong path. Admonition should never be done to tear people down and embarrass them, but be done in a way that helps to build them up. Our goal in admonition should be to help each person to become mature in Christ. Next. Admonition should be done in private and face-to-face. -face. If your brother or sister sins, Jesus says, go and point out their faults just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Privacy is important because it makes it easier for the other person to not react defensively, to save face in front of others. Words are just a part of what you share. But you know the nonverbal communication thing, right? 
You know that facial expression, tone of voice, posture, gestures, they all communicate a message more than just the words. So we should avoid admonishing someone via phone or email or text or God forbid we should use social media. Next, we should be direct and specific rather than vague, sarcastic, or judgmental. If you say to somebody, you know, I know you did that just to hurt Bill. You've made a judgment. And how do you know? Are you a mind reader? Rather, we should say something like, can we talk about the way you just talked to Bill? Can we find a time to do that? Next, we should ground our admonition in God's word. We've already mentioned this, but let me add a few things that, that are written on this. Uh, Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, which would be admonishing, correcting, and training in righteousness. Paul also says, preach the word, in prepa- preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with, uh, rebuke, again, is that admonish, with great patience and careful instruction. Use God's word. Be in God's word as you offer that. God's word has the power to, to penetrate the soul, to convict, and to change. That's how we came to Christ anyway. So we need to be sure that God's word, that is prese- it is God's word that is presenting the truth and the call to change. When we appeal to Scripture, we're making it clear that it has nothing to do with us as individuals and everything to do with God's authority in our lives. And finally, and I think this is the most important part, we should only admonish those within our community. Have you noticed that people outside the church don't want to hear people inside the church tell them what's wrong? They're not trying to live within our moral authority, and therefore, it just bounces off them. But people within the church, people maybe even in groups smaller than that, when when Paul wrote these letters to Corinth and wrote to Rome, there weren't thousands of Christians at that time, much less millions. There were hundreds of Christians at that time. And, and at that time, Christians met in people's homes. And so maybe a home had a courtyard that was big enough for 50 people, but it was highly unlikely. More likely, there was enough room for 20, maybe 30. And these people knew each other. They cared about each other. They were trying to live faith faithfully with each other. I think the, the best correlation I could offer would be like a small rural church or, or, or a Sunday school at a church our size, a Sunday school, a small group, a, 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 a group where you're learning something together, where you've decided that you're going to be together for the purpose of growing in your faith. And knowing that part of growing in your faith is that you accept one another and admonish one another or warn or correct or whatever word you choose to use if admonish is just too strong for you. What it means is that the person receiving the admonishment is in a position and a place and a mindset that they're receptive. They trusted that person 
who's offering the form of discipleship that cares for them. They trust that that person has their best in, the best, their best in mind. And we're willing to prove it by living it in their own life. The receiver of admonishment understands fully that if things were turned the other way, the one giving the admonishment would receive it as well. To admonish one another has a mutuality about it, a trust about it, a care and a love for one another. They both committed themselves to growing closer to Christ and were open to being shown a better path. It's done in community. You have permission because of the relationship that you have with them. It's done because of your standing, but not your standing in a community, not your influence in, in a group of people, but rather your influence in the heart of the one who hears you. To admonish is not to engage in a power struggle, but to help someone back on the path that, they've been, that you've been walking together. You know, a story on this that might relate, it's, it's outside of the church because it's about Ulysses S. Grant. And, you know, we live in the town where, where Grant's farm is here. And, you know, Grant spent his last years in this area. Um, and and um, Grant uh, was a hard-drinking man. That's well known. It, there's no argument about that. Smoked cigars and drank a lot. And he had a very good friend named John Rollins. And John Rollins was a general as well when Grant was a general in the Civil War. And Rollins challenged Grant. They were very good friends. And Rollins challenged Grant to quit drinking during the war because it was, the war was so important. The Civil War was so important. Rollins said, you need to stop drinking altogether. And he said, okay. Rollins could tell him that because Rollins was his friend. And he said, okay. And it worked for a while. And then he was known to be drinking again. And I don't know where Rollins was, but the story goes that he left the war wherever he was, the battlefield wherever he was, and rode by horse to find Grant and wherever he was in the Civil War to call him to account. And because they were good friends, Grant said, I can do this for this time. Now, he went back to drinking after the war was over, and, and uh, he, he was a tough soul. But he could hear his friend, Rollins, John Rollins, he could hear his friend because they were friends, because a relationship had been there ahead of time. Rollins could admonish him. Today, if you go to D.C., there's a, a, a Grant Memorial statue, not Grant's tomb, that's in New York. You know who's buried there? There's a Grant Memorial statue. In, that's a, that was a boy. That was, uh, Grant Memorial statue in uh, um, in uh, Washington D.C., but also not too far from there is a Rollins Park. Not somebody we've heard of, but somebody that Grant knew and was willing to allow him to hold him accountable. That's that's what accountability is uh, to allow a friend within our Christian community to say, it's not working. You're not headed in the right way. To be willing to receive that, but also 
to be willing to offer it as necessary. And that happens in those groups, those small groups, those Sunday school classes, those, those devotional groups that you might be together in. That's where it really happens because you trust one another. You can do that with one another. Amen and amen. So there's that verse of the song that says, the sign said, everybody welcome, come in, kneel down and pray. And when they passed around the plate at the end of it all, I didn't have a penny to pay. So I got me a pen and a paper and I made up my own little sign. I said, thank you, God, for thinking about me. I'm alive and doing fine. Don't write that note, but the offering will be collected now. <laughs>